Hello, and welcome to Teen Scientist. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra, and our audio engineering tonight is Sarit Lashinsky. Here on Teen Scientist, I bring you stories of groundbreaking innovation in the STEM disciplines entirely from a youth perspective. I feature young researchers and respected experts in their fields at the local, regional, and national levels. Today's special guest is joining us all the way from Puerto Rico. Welcome, Emily. How are you? Hi, I'm well, and you? I'm doing good. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Now, one thing I've realized about Emily and I is that although our research interests are very different, with hers being in physics and astronomy and mine being in biology and tissue regeneration, we also have very similar goals in terms of making STEM and research more accessible to youth from a young age. So I'm actually really excited for our conversation today. Um, We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump right into it. Emily, can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself? So... Um, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the opportunity. As Reina said, my name is Emily Aleman. I'm 17, and I'm from Puerto Rico. And now, can you just dive in to tell us a bit more about your major interests and hobbies outside the sphere of research? So, outside of research, I really like to do a lot of activism and taking leadership positions. In other words, I'm not athletic whatsoever. I uh, tend more towards academics. I'm the president of my class. I lead the education committee of my model United Nations Club, where I offer workshops about human rights, sustainable development goals. I also do math Olympias, and I used to do robotics until I figured out that it wasn't my field whatsoever. I also created a club in my school called Youth STEM Research Initiative, and I'm working on a bigger project related to STEM and Latin American minorities, which I hope we can talk about more later in the interview. Absolutely. You definitely seem to keep yourself busy. And one thing I've noticed after speaking to other young researchers like yourself is that everyone's journey into science and research is so unique. So I now want to talk and walk through your entire timeline of how you got involved in science and research. So can you first tell us what initially sparked your interest in science? And do you recall any specific experience with STEM from when you were much younger? Yes, of course. So I feel like I have to give a little bit of more context to answer this question. I grew up asking lots and lots of questions as any other STEM person does. However, I didn't have any figure I could look up to academically. No one in my family holds a STEM degree. And I went to the same religious private school in Puerto Rico from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade. This school didn't really have any science program outside of the science class, which was more like a reading comprehension class than active science. We didn't even do science fairs. So even though I was always very driven towards experimenting and questioning, I didn't have any space to explore that until after middle school, when I entered a semi-boarding school in Puerto Rico specialized in science and mathematics. I can um, remember the first thing that marked my interest towards becoming a scientist was actually thermodynamics, which is currently not my field of research, but it's related. I remember being in my fifth grade science class, and one of the pages in the science book provided by the school had a list of all milestone discoveries since the beginning of time to the moment the book was published. And there there were a lot of new words and strange words specifically that I didn't know the meaning of, especially thermodynamics. I asked my teacher at that time the meaning of the word, and she didn't know either. So she gave me the homework to research about it when I got home. So I did. 
I excitedly got home and I put thermodynamics in my browser. Of course, I didn't understand initially what it was, so I searched it up in layman's terms and I saw a bunch of videos about it. Um, I remember watching a video about the thermodynamics behind a drinking bird toy and I eventually reached a video about the thermodynamics processes happening inside of stars. This was the first time that I encountered astrophysics and I've been very passionate about it ever since. After this experience, I had made and a little after-school routine to self-teach myself astronomy. This all continued, this passion for astronomy continued growing until I begged my dad for a telescope and a Stephen Hawking book called A Brief History of Time. And from there, here I am doing research within astrophysics. And where I am going with this is that it doesn't matter what background anyone comes from. Young scientists will always find their way towards science. It's like a natural tendency. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the detailed timeline you walked us through. It's really interesting to, you know, get the vivid imagery of your entire story. Now, as someone who grew up in Puerto Rico, I think it's particularly important to touch on this, especially since a lot of our listeners might be from the states or like near Pennsylvania area. Um, So I want to know what kind of resources did you have access to as a kid that you were able to use to pursue your STEM interests? So I wouldn't really say that I had any special access to resources besides those like YouTube, Khan Academy, and the Internet after I reached high school. For example, in Puerto Rico, the two main types of resources I exploded was my ability to cold email professors of local universities and the existence of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. However, this is kind of controversial because... Uh, the main instrument in the Arecibo Observatory had collapsed in 2018, which was the radio telescope. It was actually the most powerful radio telescope in the world until after China built a bigger and more powerful one. But people from all over the world used to go to Puerto Rico to use the instrument in the observatory. And so in my sophomore year of high school, I interned at the Arecibo Observatory to do research. After that, I called emailed a professor at the uh, local lab called the Planetary Habitability Lab, which also specializes in planetary habitability. But of course, these are opportunities that I got after I was a little bit used to research. But in middle school or in elementary school, I didn't really have any special access to any resources. All right. So I kind of want to dig deeper into that. Upon reflection, what resources did you wish you had access to or wish you took advantage of that you can now advise other aspiring scientists to utilize to pursue their STEM interests, starting from that elementary to middle school age? When I was younger, I wish I knew the amount of power that I carried in my phone or in my iPad. I mean, we carry all information right in our pocket. We have access to research papers, books, online lectures, and such. And my biggest advice to everyone is that there's no need to wait until college to learn a concept, to do research, or to develop an idea. I wish I had taken advantage of platforms like Coursera, Khan Academy, and Google Scholar. I now know the existence of those platforms, but when I was younger, I didn't. There are so many opportunities for both middle and high school students to do research and gain exposure free of cost. Another thing I wish I knew was the power of cold emailing. If there's a local university with a lab hosting the type of research you're interested in, you can email the professor in charge to do some job shadowing, tour the lab, and potentially be a part of the ongoing research as an intern. The worst kind of answer that you can obtain is just a no. 
Great advice. Thank you for that. Can you now tell us a bit more about your current research interests as a young scientist? Have you had one specific focus over the years, or do you have varying interests that you like to explore? So all of my research projects lie within the exoplanet field. For anyone who is unfamiliar with the term, an exoplanet is an extrasolar planet orbiting another star, which is not the sun. And before we dive into your most recent project, can you give us an overview of the other scientific or research experiences that you've had prior to the study? Did you have any other experiments that you were running or kind of smaller science fair projects that you did before this big one? Yes, I I actually did, yes. So my first real research experience was, as I said before, in the Arecibo Observatory, where I had the opportunity of interning in a supervised research group dedicated to exoplanet habitability. I had developed an accurate model of orbital model of the K2-3 planetary system and managed to create a habitability model to compare K2-3D, one of the three planets in the system, to Earth. The Arecibo Observatory actually selected me from all of the other members of the research group to present my findings in the American Astronomical Society's 2 for 1 conference, which took place about five months ago in January. It was a very fun experience in Seattle. Amazing. And now, can you give us a brief explanation of what your most recent study was about? Uh, Yes. So I created a computational model to identify and filter certain exoplanet demographics within large amounts of data from exoplanet surveys. I particularly focused on mining candidates, which were likely habitable, as in suitable for having a rocky composition and orbiting within the habitable zone of a star. All right. And can you kind of explain the motivation behind automating the process of identifying likely habitable exoplanet candidates within big data sets? Of course. So the exoplanet field is currently experiencing a big data crisis due to having too much data. As telescopes advance in precision and sensitivity, they are able to detect more and more exoplanets. Specifically, Earth-like planets are bound to increase the most. To put you in context, we actually have more exoplanet detections than actual exoplanet research. However, we only have a handful of astronomers or data analysts to handle all of these detections. Another really important aspect um, that is worth to mention is that not only because a telescope makes a detection, the detection is automatically called an exoplanet. Detections are called exoplanet candidates until after being confirmed with follow-up research. And follow-up research takes a lot of selection criteria, time, resources, and especially funds. So what I wanted to automate was the process of selecting exoplanet candidates that were the most suitable or worthwhile for investing in follow-up research. And what factors did you consider in developing your computational model in Python, and why did you choose the test data specifically? Yes, I considered factors which altogether made an accurate habitability model. So factors like an Earth-like radius of the planet and orbit within the habitable zone, right temperatures and right stellar flux ranges for water to develop, and overall similarity to Earth, which is calculated mathematically. One thing I would like to clarify is that um, we look for Earth-like radii because planets that have an Earth-like radii are more probable of having a rocky composition. I also showed test data, also called the Transmitting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, because it has many unconfirmed candidates with close orbits to their stars, and most of the candidates in the survey have radii similar to Earth. 
So it had many candidates which matched the description I was looking to filter. And so how did you validate the success of your computational model in mining prospective rocky exoplanets within the habitable zone? I had validated my model in two ways. The first one was by checking if the exoplanet candidates that were in my training set successfully surpassed my habitability constraints. I also checked if they were talked about on other research papers concerning habitability. So if my model successfully identified certain exoplanets as potentially Earth-like, and if those same exoplanets were also referred as potentially Earth-like by other professional astronomers, then the results were validated. Another type of validation method that I used was sending my results to accredited labs within habitability, like the Test Follow-up Observing Program at MIT and the Exoplanet Habitability Lab in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Both, as I said before, both of these labs specialize in exoplanet habitability, so they are the experts in the field. And before we dive into our break, I want to quickly ask, how did you incorporate post-processing visualization into your model, and what role did it play in the analysis? Yes, so when I say post-processing visualization, I mean that after the model identifies the planets that we are looking for, it also tells you why it identified those certain planets and what features influence the decision of the model the most. So after the habitability model identified and filtered Earth-like candidates, it made additional statistical visualizations about the relationships between different features, looking for some sort of pattern. We can talk about this more after the break. But for example, the model did some visualizations about the relationship of radii and stellar flux in and out of the habitable zone. And that helped me analyze that the habitable zone actually demonstrated a certain pattern of similar ranges of flux and luminosity inside of it. Amazing. And I hate to cut you off, but we do have to pause for a short break. When we return, Emily will continue discussing her research as well as share some lessons and advice for other young listeners interested in physics and astronomy. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist on WDIY. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100, extension 4, or WDIY.org. We couldn't be here without you. Welcome back. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra, on Teen Scientist. Joining us today is a young Puerto Rican scientist named Emily Alamon. We just finished discussing her early research experiences, and now we are going to dive right back into discussing her most recent research projects. Emily, can you elaborate on the demographic tendencies that you analyzed throughout the filtering stages, and then what were your key findings? Yes, of course. So what I observed from the Transiting Exoplanet Survey satellite data is that it inclined towards exoplanets that were much more larger than Earth, stars that were much more brighter than the Sun, and overall low similarity towards Earth-like systems. So I was expecting to see a much bigger demographic of Earth-like planets, but I did not see that. And my hypothesis was, was that this could be due to detection bias. 
And can you discuss the bias in detection method by instrument sensitivity and how that impacts the identification of exoplanets capable of harboring water? So as I was saying, what I observed did not match with what I was expecting because TESS uses an indirect method of exoplanet detection called the transit method, meaning it does not visually see the planet directly but measures how much the planet dims or covers the light of the host star every time it orbits in front of it from the point of view of the telescope. And if the dimming occurs periodically, then it's called a transit. What happens with the transit method is that it is much more easier to detect a larger planet than to detect a smaller planet because larger planets dim the stars, the light of their home stars, much more than a smaller planet. In fact, some small planets can even transit undetected because their star is too bright for them to cause a noticeable effect. Think of it as if you covered a light bulb temporarily with your hand and if you covered it with a small coin your hand would be much more effective in dimming the light of the ball because it is larger. We see this reflected in exoplanet surveys because bigger planets are detected much more frequently than smaller ones. And in the past, we thought that smaller planets were just less frequent. However, now we think that it's actually detection bias. And if we were to build larger, more precise telescopes, such as the James Webb Space Telescope, then we would be able to find more smaller planets which is what we are actually seeing. And so what were the constant qualities that you hypothesized likely habitable exoplanets share, and how did these qualities influence radii, stellar flux, and the habitable zone? So because I was looking for a specific type of exoplanet demographic, that is Earth-like planets, I knew that this certain demographics had to share certain variables. In this case, of rocky composition, as I said before, and orbit in the habitable zone, um, many Earth-sized planets orbit, let's say, M, F, and G-type stars. So those were the main things I was looking for. And in my research, I mentioned that this could influence the habitable zone because the way the habitable zone works is that it will be further away from the star the more luminous the star is. And the distance of the habitable zone is a function of a star's luminosity to obtain a constant range of stellar flux for water to develop. So... We now know that if we want to discover or identify smaller Earth-like planets, we have to look in dimmer stars because smaller planets are only going to be detected in dimmer stars with the satellite that we are using. And we know approximately how the distance of the habitable sun will be according to each stellar type. You kind of have to use the knowledge that you previously have about what Earth-like planets are going to share. And with that, you use that knowledge to filter or mine them. Interesting. All right. And now, can you explain the relationship between exoplanet size and the types of stars that they are detected orbiting? And why are larger exoplanets more commonly found around certain spectral types? So, as I said before, smaller exoplanets tend to be detected among dimmer stars, and bigger exoplanets tend to be detected orbiting almost any kind of star, unless it is too, too bright. But what I found in my test data set was that smaller exoplanets were detected orbiting M, S, and D-type stars in order of frequency, whereas bigger planets were detected orbiting almost any types of stars, um, excluding A and B types of stars, because those are the two brightest types of stars, according to spectral types. Again, this is due to the two detection bias. 
And what were the specific ranges of luminosity and stellar flux within the habitable zone that you observed, and how do these ranges correspond to the spectral types hosting the majority of exoplanets? Yes, so what I observed is that exoplanets that were found orbiting in the habitable zone all orbited stars with a luminosity of 0.004 to 4.441 times the luminosity of the sun, and all experienced a stellar flux of 0.213 to 1.7758 times the stellar flux of the sun. And so stellar types that have those luminosities and stellar flux ranges were the ones that hosted the majority of candidates in the habitable zone. Amazing. And I now want to transition into an overview of the test habitable exoplanet catalog that you created. So can you give us an overview of of what you made and how did you narrow down the candidates for spectroscopy and follow-up confirmation? Yes, so I created a test habitable exoplanet catalog, also called SPEC, and it's basically a way of providing a list of the most suitable candidates for spectroscopy. The candidates in SPEC are the ones that survive the habitability model successfully. So after the after you introduce a big data set towards my habitability model, the model quickly, in a matter of seconds, identifies the ones that are most suitable for follow-up research, like a spectroscopy or mass measurement. Um, depending on what type of research you want to do, the model does take it into consideration to give you the filtered list. And then the test habitable planet catalog takes those planets and incorporates them into the catalog. The best thing about the catalog is that it can be updated easily. So every time NASA updates the detections in the test data, you can just introduce the data into the model and the process repeats itself. Now, can you explain to us what exactly are the applications of your research? Like, we understand the kind of logistics and your entire methodology, but I now want to dive into where we can actually apply this work to the real world and the future of physics and astronomy. Yes, so as I said before, we are experiencing data overload in the exoplanet field, and this actually, it makes the job of an astronomer or a researcher much difficult because let's say um, you have telescope time and you have to decide which candidate you're going to invest that telescope time on. And the more data you have, the more options you're going to have, thus the more difficult it is to make a selection criteria. And my research is meant to be applied in this process of data analysis and automation part of exoplanet surveys. And so in the real world, what the exoplanet field is trying to do is to contribute to the standardized theory of planetary formation. However, we cannot do that unless we start to do more and more research. So we, have, we really have to get automating satellite surveys regarding exoplanets to be able to do more research. Absolutely. And you've submitted your research to several different events and competitions, such as ISAF and JSHS. What is the most interesting thing that you've seen or experienced at these competitions? So I am always honored of participating in science fairs because I get to see what other brilliant minds are working on and what their unique approaches are. So I always learn a lot from them. I've seen many other kids doing their own contributions to space science and the exoplanet field. And this excites me very much because they may be my future colleagues or collaborators. Who knows? They may be the future leaders of their respective fields. And I'm there meeting them in person when they're still young. Um, one experience that 
shocked me the most was that in ISF, one of my judges, she worked at NASA, and she actually referred me to another opportunity regarding the future of my research. One thing that I do wish to get to see in research competitions like ISEF or, well, ISEF specifically, is to see more Latin communities participating, which I don't get to see. Absolutely. And do you think these opportunities, which we all know are so valuable and enriching, do you think they're well known, especially in areas like Puerto Rico? And what do you think the next steps are to increasing awareness and STEM outreach in your community? So not at all. No, no one in my school, although it is specialized in STEM, knew about the Regional and International Science Fair or the Junior Science and Humanities Symposium. I didn't either until this year. And there's not much exposure to science competitions or opportunities here in the island unless attending a private school. Regarding your second question about how do I plan to increase awareness, um, this is a great question and something I'm constantly thinking about ways I could address that myself. So currently, I'm creating a Latino research network with Juan Romero, student from El Salvador, who I met from RSI. We want to increase the interest and participation of science among Latin American countries. And the way we are planning to do this is by increasing exposure. We believe this is necessary to generate interest in science, and we also believe that opportunities are meant to be shared. We're currently launching our website, Red Latina Americana de Investigación, to celebrate Latino researchers, publish our papers, share resources, and such. So if anyone is interested and is part of this minority, well, that's amazing and such an important topic to kind of work on. So that kind of initiative is such a valuable project to be a part of. I now want to transition to your plans for the future. You mentioned RSI. Can you kind of explain what your plans for this summer are and also where you hope to be much further down the line in terms of your career, maybe 10 years from now? Yes, so as you said, I'll be attending RSI. I'm really, really excited for the opportunity. I'm planning to use all of the opportunities and resources that I get while at my internship in RSI, and I hope to be able to do something meaningful while at it. Regarding your second question, um, 10 years from now, I hope to have done or to be doing my PhD within astrophysics. I haven't decided my subfield yet. And as any other scientist, I hope to have done meaningful contributions to my future field of work. And as a minority, I hope to have inspired other underprivileged communities to follow the passions in STEM. I want to keep working on facilitating the access to opportunities or creating more opportunities to lessen the cultural gaps within STEM fields. Absolutely. And before we wrap up, I want to ask, what advice would you give to our young listeners based on the lessons you've learned that are also interested in pursuing a career in physics and astronomy? Yes, yeah, so I actually have two pieces of advice. The first one is to always value collaboration. Science is all about small or big contributions that add up to an even bigger contribution with a potential of changing history. Science is not a space to be self-centered. It's a space to share knowledge objectively. So always be um, open to collaborating with other people, to working with other people, to valuing your own and other small contributions. It's all very important. And my second piece of advice is, uh, especially for the physics and astrophysics majors and math majors too, is to thrive on complexity. Physics will only get harder as you advance. So be excited and passionate about learning things which are hard. 
it is much more gratifying than learning things that are easy. The best thing about science is that it is understandable. So try to understand the universe's complexity in an intuitive way. Otherwise, your knowledge will be very fragile. Absolutely. I completely agree. Thank you for leaving us with that piece of advice. Lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? So anyone can download the ISEP 2023 app and search for my project with ID FIS044. That's P-H-Y-S-044. And if, we, if you wish to know more or to collaborate, you can email me at ealeman at mit.edu. Thank you so much, Emily, for taking the time to be with us today. It's been fascinating to hear about your experiences with astronomy and planetary identification. I can't wait to see where your research takes you in the future. Thank you. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today for WDIY's Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this program, please go to WDIY.org or the WDIY app to share or become a WDIY member.